Deuteronomy 22 to 26 tonight. Deuteronomy 27 through 30 next Sunday night. And then we'll skip a week and then Deuteronomy 31 through 34. We'll finish up the book of Deuteronomy the first weekend in April. Which will be here before we know it. Deuteronomy chapter 22 tonight. Father, thank you for your love for us. And we enjoy this. We enjoy coming and just going through your word. What a blessing it is. The truths that are here, the treasures that can be mined, the encouragement that you bring. Just lead us into all truth. Encourage us and help us to see. And in areas, Lord, where we may have not seen clearly, straighten out our vision so that we can see things from your perspective. Lord, we know that life goes better with God. Help us, Lord, to live and walk in your will daily. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. A New Yorker was passing through a South Georgia town on his way to Florida. He was driving down this country road when his car got stuck in a mud hole. The man dropped his car into low gear. He tried to wiggle it out of the, the hole. His tires started spinning and all, trying to get out of the mud. But of course, the harder he tried, the more entrenched he became. Well, after a few minutes, he noticed a farmer riding down the road in an ox-drawn cart. And this farmer offered to pull the man out of the mud for $100. Well, the city slicker agreed. He hitched his car to the oxen, and within minutes, the car was free. Afterwards, the farmer commented, he says, You know, that's the 10th person today I've pulled out of that mud. Well, the New Yorker, he, he said, Wow, you're, you're a kind person. You must be a generous guy. I mean, when do you have time to plow your fields? You must have to do it at night. And that's when the farmer answered, oh, no, not at night. That's when I water down the mud hole. <laughs> well, in Deuteronomy chapter 22, God addresses a host of various concerns. The chapter covers a mix of environmental issues Safety procedures, ceremonial laws, moral principles, domestic grievances, even criminal offenses. It's a smorgasbord, and we start off with a few verses on oxen. Verse 1. You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray, and hide yourself from them. You shall certainly bring them back to your brother. Now, sin can be categorized into two types, sins of commission and sins of omission. A sin of commission is to do what you shouldn't. A sin of omission is to not do what you should. And here Moses is warning about a sin of omission. When you see your neighbor's lost ox, don't just turn your head and refuse to get involved. Don't take the attitude, well, that's not my problem. Love refuses to sit on the sidelines. Love is willing to take risks. It's willing to reach out. It dares to get involved. When it sees a need, it tries to meet it. And if your brother is not near you, or if you do not know him, then you shall bring it to your own house, and it shall remain with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall restore it to him. Hey, find a wallet on the side of the road. Or an expensive watch? Don't just stick it in your pocket and sing finders, keepers, losers, weepers. Oh no. You should go out of your way to return that lost item to its rightful owner. You shall do the same with his donkey. And so shall you do with his garment, with any lost thing of your brother's, which he has lost and you have found. You shall do likewise. You must not Hide yourself. If you're the last one to leave tonight, on a Sunday night, and you see a beautiful, nice jacket lying in your seat, your size, just coincidence, that doesn't mean that God has blessed you with a new jacket. Take it to the lost and found. Hey, if we find a wallet in the sanctuary after the service, same thing. We look out for the owner. We show him love. We take all of the cash that's in the wallet, we put it in the offering box, 
Because we know this is what the owner of the wallet would want us to do. I mean, who comes to church with a bunch of cash unless they want to give an offering? And then we drop the money in the offering box and we then wait and give the wallet back to the rightful owner. You just, you just want to show love toward your brother. You shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fall down along the road and hide yourself from them. You shall surely help him lift them up again. His donkey, his ox, or his automobile broken down on the side of the road. You don't dip down, you know, under the steering wheel where you can't be recognized. If you see your neighbor's car broken down on the roadside, stop and help. Or if you see he's been in an accident, stop and help. By the way, what do you call it when two oxen crash into each other? That's an occident. Not just an accident, it's an occident. Verse 5 changes the subject. Aren't you glad? It addresses a very serious subject. A woman shall not wear anything that pertains to a man, nor shall a man put on a woman's garment. For all who do so are an abomination to the Lord your God. In antiquity, the general dress for men and women was similar. Long robes in these wrapping garments. But there were subtleties that provided clear distinction between the sexes. Moses and his wife both wore a long robe, but you could tell the difference between her robe and his robe, certainly. Likewise, my wife and I both wear jeans, but there's no confusion between my jeans and her jeans, or my slacks and her slacks. When God created humanity, he created us male and female. Remember, gender was God's idea. He created the sexes equal but different, and quite frankly, I'm glad. They play diverse roles in family life, and this is why God doesn't want anything to blur the distinctions between male and female. And here the concern is dress, androgynous, or unisex fashion is here forbidden. Obviously, fashion is always changing. But whether you're living in 1400 B.C. or in 2000 A.D., men should look like men and women should look like women. My family will let you know in a hurry how strongly I feel about this issue. I don't let my boys walk out with these, with these jeans. I just, it might be fashionable, but it's just not going to happen. They're going to look like boys. My daughter's going to look like a girl. My sons are going to look like a boy. You know, today's modern culture laughs and jokes about these issues. But that's not God's perspective. The Bible teaching that teaches that cross-dressing and masquerading as the opposite sex is not a fun, harmless, innocent fascination. It's a distortion of sexual identities, and it's forbidden. God created us male and female, and we should never blur those boundaries. Even if done jokingly, I still think cross-dressing is an unhealthy practice. At home and in society, we should do all that we can to promote masculinity among men and femininity among women. I agree with the lady who made the comment, oh, for the day when men were men and women were proud of it. <laughs> Verse 6, if a bird's nest happens to be before you along the way, in any tree or on the ground with young ones or eggs, with the mother sitting on the young or on the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. You shall surely let the mother go and take the young for yourself, that it may be well with you and that you may prolong your days. Now here's one of the Bible's be kind to animals verses. There are some in the Bible. And notice the correlation here. Kindness to animals prolongs occupation in the land. I think that's interesting. He says that your days may be prolonged. If Israel is friendly to its environment, God will keep it as its custodian. That makes sense. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. But there are some Jewish commentators that consider verses 6 and 7 to be the smallest or the least of the commandments. Be kind to a bird. Greatest commandment, love God. Smallest commandment, be kind to a bird. And here's the point of the Jewish commentators. Evidently, God is so loving and he's so gracious and he's so benevolent that even the least of his commandments carries such a significant blessing that you may prolong your days in the land. Speaking of kindness to animals, did you hear about the man who strolled into this ritzy restaurant with his dog? The maitre d' tells him, he says, I'm sorry, sir, but we don't let dogs eat here. No dogs allowed. And the guy says, but you've got to understand, my dog is a talking dog. This is a special dog. Tell you what I'll do. I'll ask my dog three questions, and if he gets all three questions right, how about just letting us not only eat here, but why don't you just pay for dinner? Maitre d' says, no problem. So the man turns, he asks his dog, he says, Spot, what's the opposite of smooth? Spot goes, Roof. Oh, wow. Spot, what's on top of the house? Roof. He turns to the maitre d'. Wow, two out of two. I hope you're impressed. Now for the grand finale. He turns to his dog and he says, Spot, who's the greatest home run hitter of all time? Babe, roof. The maitre d', you know, he, enough is enough. How ridiculous. He grabs the man and his dog by the collar. He, throws them both outside the restaurant, and there they are laying on the side of the street when suddenly the dog turns over to his owner and he says, well, I guess on that last question I should have said Hank Aaron. <laughs> I think that's hilarious. <coughs> I should have said Hank Aaron. The moral of the story, be kind to animals. Verse 8, when you build a new house, then you shall make a parapet or a railing for your roof, that you may not bring guilt of bloodshed on your household if anyone falls from it. And of course, you know, they spent a lot of time on the rooftops. It was a place to hang out and fellowship. Once when we were down in Haiti, we held an evangelistic rally in front of this hospital. And dozens and dozens of people gave their life to Jesus when we gave the altar call. It was incredible. And we wanted to talk to them further, but we wanted to kind of separate them from the crowd. So we told those who had responded to go to a room that was on the second floor of the building. That meant that they had to walk up some steps. And of course, there was no railing. There are no railings anywhere in Haiti. The owner of the building, as soon as I suggested it, he panicked. Because since those steps had no railing, he feared that someone would fall off of the steps, get hurt, perhaps even die. And what would happen, the locals would then conclude that his building was cursed. And they would never again come back onto his property. You see, a railing had spiritual significance to him. I think this verse highlights the responsibility of a man who starts a family, who builds himself a house. I think it speaks to a father. It speaks to a husband. Dad, it's your responsibility to set standards, to provide boundaries, to set up safeguards for your wife and kids. It's your responsibility to provide spiritual railings for your household, lest they fall and hurt themselves. He says, you shall not sow your vineyard with different kinds of seed, lest the yield of the seed which you have sown and the fruit of your vineyard be defiled. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. An ox and a donkey were different species. They had different instincts. Thus put the two of them in the same harness and they'll end up fighting with each other. And the same applies to a believer and an unbeliever. When harnessed together in a marriage or when yoked together in a business partnership, diverse priorities will arise. There's two species, there's two natures, and they'll end up in constant conflict. It's misery. This is why Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 14, to not be unequally yoked 
with an unbeliever. I think verses 9 through 11 were all given to sensitize God's people to the dangers of mixing competing characteristics, whether it be an ox and a donkey, whether it be wool and linen. He says in verse 11, You shall not wear a garment of different sorts, such as wool and linen mixed together. You see, partner with an unbeliever is like, at first, it's like putting on linen. It's cool. No problem. No sweat. But then you turn up the heat, and suddenly it gets hot. It's like wool. It does become a sweat. It does involve perspiration and agony. It turns into an ordeal. Wool and linen should never be mixed. He says, you shall make tassels on the four corners of the clothing with which you cover yourself. And you remember Numbers. It was chapter 15, verse 38, said these tassels were a reminder to the Jews of God's law. To this day, they were tassels on the borders of their garments. Verse 13, if any man takes a wife and goes into her and detests her and charges her with shameful conduct and brings a bad name on her and says, I took this woman and when I came to her, I found she was not a virgin. Now, often people will want us, I'm sure you've had this question asked of you, people will want us to show them where the Bible specifically forbids premarital sex. And here is a great example. For among God's people, within His divinely designed society, Israel, when two people married, there was an expectation of virginity between them. Virginity was highly valued. And without it, a woman's chances for marriage were greatly reduced. Well, these next few verses deal with a situation where a man accuses his wife of false advertising, basically. Of saying that she's a virgin when in reality she's not. He says, Then the father and the mother of the young woman shall take and bring out the evidence of the young woman's virginity to the elders of the city at the gate. What was this evidence? Well, on their wedding night, it was customary for the newlyweds to lay a cloth under them so that it collected the few drops of blood that were created by the woman's initial intercourse. This was then given to the parents as proof of the woman's virginity. Now today, gynecological exams... And the fact that women marry at much later ages make this an impractical test. But in ancient times, the new brides could be 13, 14, sometimes even younger. And so this proved to be a reliable test of a woman's virginity. It's interesting, there are places in the Middle East, even to this day, where this custom is still observed. Now, if she's accused, the bride's parents bring out this evidence of virginity, the cloth. And the young woman's father shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter to this man his wife, and he detests her. Now he has charged her with shameful conduct, saying, I found your daughter was not a virgin, and yet these are the evidences of my daughter's virginity. And they shall spread the cloth before the elders of the city. Then the elders of that city shall take that man and punish him. In other words, the man had lied in an attempt to gain a divorce from his wife. And they shall find him a hundred shekels of silver, and they'll give them to the father of the young woman because he has brought a bad name on a virgin of Israel. You see how God valued virginity? He says, and she shall be his wife. He cannot divorce her all his days. Verse 20. But if the thing is true and evidences of virginity are not found for the young woman, then they shall bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house and the men of her city shall stone her to death with stones because she has done a disgraceful thing in Israel to play the harlot in her father's house. So you shall put away the evil from among you. And you say, God takes premarital sex lightly? <laughs> That's not what these verses tell me. 
Now, if a man is found lying with a woman married to a husband, then both of them shall die. The man that lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall put away the evil from Israel. Two people caught in the act of adultery both deserved the death penalty. And this is why the episode in John chapter 8 is so suspicious. You remember the woman taken in adultery that they threw at Jesus' feet? She was taken in the very act. Well, if so, where was her partner? Last I checked, it takes two to commit adultery. According to the law, both the man and the woman was stoned, but on that day they only delivered the woman. It's likely that she was the victim of a pharisaical setup. Verse 23 tells us, If a young woman who is a virgin is betrothed to a husband, and a man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city, and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry out in the city, and the man, because he humbled his neighbor's wife, so you shall put away the evil from among you. Now, the fact that the woman didn't cry out implies that the sex was consensual. It was not a rape. But if a man finds a betrothed young woman in the countryside and the man forces her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the young woman. There is in the young woman no sin deserving of death. For just as when a man rises against his neighbor and kills him, even so is this matter for he found her in the countryside, and the betrothed young woman cried out, but there was no one to save her. In this case, it's rape. And rape is not the woman's fault. She should be comforted, not condemned. And thus God punishes the man, but then brings comfort to the woman. Now, if a man finds a young woman who is a virgin, who is not betrothed, and he seizes her and lies with her, and they are found out. And again, the implication here is that it's consensual. Then the man who lay with her shall give, her, give to the young woman's father 50 shekels of silver. And she shall be his wife because he has humbled her. He shall not be permitted to divorce her all his days. Now, here's the case of two people who have premarital sex. They are to marry. But notice this, when does the woman become the man's wife? When they have sex? No, not at all. They become husband and wife when the man pays her father the bridal price. This was the procedure by which people in ancient times entered marriage. Don't tell me that just because you live with this person and that you've had sex with her, then you're married in God's eyes. I've heard that a million times. The Bible is clear. In God's eyes, you're not married. In fact, God doesn't recognize two people as being married until the bridal price is paid. Or, in essence, the legalities are completed. And whatever those legalities happen to be based on that culture at that time are what constitutes a marriage in God's eyes. In that day, it was the payment of a bridal price. In our day, it means standing before an official and exchanging vows, a ceremony. Understand that? Good. Clear to me, I don't know why I didn't to a lot of other people that I talked to. Verse 30 forbids incest. A man shall not take his father's wife, nor uncover his father's bed. You shall not have sex with your stepmother. Which was a sin, by the way, going on in the church at Corinth. You remember Paul addressed it in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. You see, not only did Israel need these laws, but they also provide a moral compass for the church today. Chapter 23 tells us, Now he who is emasculated 
by crushing or mutilation shall not enter the congregation of the Lord. Now remember that the covenant God made with Israel was with Abraham and his seed. Remember that? It was a covenant inherited by birth. Thus, a eunuch. Someone who had been emasculated. Someone who had been crushed or mutilated could never be a full participant in the life of the nation. Because he could never give birth. He could never pass on that lineage. He was limited. One of the illegitimate birth shall not enter the congregation of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of his descendants shall enter the congregation of the Lord. Ten generations of blood had to flow to make him a legitimate heir. An Ammonite or Moabite shall not enter the congregation of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of his descendants shall enter the congregation of the Lord forever. Because they did not meet you with bread and water on the road when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Balaam. You remember old Balaam, the son of Beor, a greedy guy, from Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you. The tenth generation rule applied to mixed marriages with Gentiles, except for Ammonites and Moabites. Because they hired Balaam to curse Israel, they were cursed forever. Nevertheless, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. And you remember the story numbers. Chapters 23 and 24, four times Balaam, the soothsayer, tried to open his mouth to utter a curse on Israel. And each time God changed his curse into a blessing. He couldn't curse Israel even when he tried. God turned the tables on him. And you know, God is still good at turning the tables on his enemies. You recall Joseph, what he said to his brothers, as for you... You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. So if someone is after you tonight, hey, take heart. God is good at turning the tables on our enemies. Now God says of these Ammonites and Moabites, You shall not seek their peace nor their prosperity all your days forever. Evidently, the permanent restrictions on Moabites applied only to the men. Because later we'll find that Moabite women were allowed to marry Israelis and become citizens. Ruth was a Moabitess. And she became the great-grandma of someone very famous, King David, right? Verse 7, you shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. You remember the Edomites were descendants of Esau, Isaac's son, Jacob's brother. You shall not abhor an Egyptian. Because you were an alien in his land, the children of the third generation born to them may enter the assembly of the Lord. Now the next few laws apply to cleanliness and sanitation. When the army goes out against your enemies, then keep yourself from every wicked thing. If there is <coughs> excuse me, any man among you who becomes unclean by some occurrence in the night... Then he shall go outside the camp, he shall not come inside the camp, but it shall be when evening comes that he shall wash with water, and when the sun sets, he may come into the camp. He was subject to a temporary quarantine. Also, you shall have a place outside the camp where you may go out, and you shall have an implement among your equipment. And when you sit down outside, I'm sorry, but this is funny. You're supposed to have an implement among your equipment. <laughs> See, I've already read this. <laughs> and when you sit down outside, you shall dig with it and turn and cover your refuse. Now, this is for the man who's in the middle of battle, and if he needs to relieve himself, he's to go outside of the camp. And when he's done, he's to turn over his business with a shovel. You know, kind of bury it. And I love the reason we're given. 
for why he should leave no chip unturned. Verse 14, for the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp. <laughs> The Lord doesn't want to step on it. Turn it over with your shovel. <laughs> for, the, for the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and give your enemies over to you. Therefore your camp shall be holy that he may see no unclean thing among you and turn away from you. <laughs> Verse 15. You shall not give back to his... I bet you didn't know that was in the Bible, did you? Verse 15. You shall not give back to his master the slave who has escaped from his master to you. Now, I think this is kind. You don't give back the runaway. Obviously, he, he may have been abused, probably was misused. You don't give him back. There was a reason he ran away. Masters were supposed to be kind and benevolent toward their slaves in Israel. He may dwell with you in your midst in the place which he chooses within one of your gates, where it seems best to him, you shall not oppress him. Now there shall be no ritual harlot of the daughters of Israel or a perverted one of the sons of Israel. The ritual harlots were temple prostitutes. And in idolatrous lands, there were women who sold sex to raise funds for the priests in the temple of their idol. The ritual harlots. A perverted one was a homosexual prostitute. We're told you shall not bring the wages of a harlot or the price of a dog, which was another way of referring to the proceeds of this male prostitution. It's interesting, the price of a dog. To the house of the Lord your God for any vowed offering, for both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God. You shall not charge interest to your brother. Interest on money or food or anything that is lent out at interest. Don't make a profit off your brother. That's what the Gentiles are for. <laughs> What's the old joke? You know why God created the Gentiles? Somebody's got to pay retail. <laughs> To a foreigner, you may charge interest, but to your brother, you shall not charge interest, that the Lord your God may bless you in all to which you set your hand in the land which you are entering to possess. Now, when you make a vow to the Lord your God, well, you did it when you got married. You shall not delay to pay it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and it would be sin to you. But if you abstain from vowing, it shall not be a sin to you. Or as Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 5 puts it, Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. That which is gone from your lips you shall keep and perform, for you voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God which you have promised with your mouth. Be a man of your word. Be a woman of your word. And you'll be a witness for Jesus Christ. Now when you come into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes at your pleasure. But you shall not put any in your container. When you come into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the heads with your hand. But you shall not use a sickle on your neighbor's standing grain. In other words, this was a kindness to the traveler. You know, you're passing through the vineyard, grab you a few grapes, passing through the grain field, grab you some grain, you know, some little grounded up, you know, little wheat for you, some refreshment along the way. This was a courtesy to the traveler. This did not allow a bum to camp out in your vineyard or in your wheat field and mooch off of you all the time. Yeah, that explains it. <laughs> now, in Deuteronomy chapter 24, God regulates divorce. But understand up front, 
Just because God regulated divorce doesn't mean he ever approved of it. In fact, Malachi chapter 2 verse 16 makes it crystal clear. The Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. Don't ever doubt what God's attitude toward divorce is. He hates it. For it covers one's garment with violence. That's interesting. Malachi considers divorce a violent act. And indeed it is. In fact, the Hebrew word for divorce implies an amputation. The root word means a hewing off or a cutting apart. C.S. Lewis made an interesting observation about divorce. He said, Christians all regard divorce as something like cutting up a living body, as a kind of surgical operation. Some think that the operation is so violent that it cannot be done at all. Others admit that it is a desperate remedy in extreme cases. They are all agreed that it is more like having your legs cut off than it is like dissolving a business partnership. Indeed, that's true. God hated divorce. It was a violent act. It tore apart a union between two people. And thus, this law in chapter 24 is an attempt by God to curb divorce and to promote marriage. What it did was formalize a procedure that made a divorce more difficult to obtain and therefore discouraged it. He says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, And it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. Now, prior to this law, all you had to do to divorce your wife was just say, bye-bye, honey. That was it. But notice what he does here. Now you have to obtain a certificate, which would force you to visit the elders of the city. This also would create a cooling off period. It would also require public exposure of your deeds. Now the person seeking the divorce has to think, well, maybe the problems can be worked out after all. Does this person really want the public humiliation of admitting to a failed marriage? Now all of a sudden he has to think through these things. Because of the time delay, rash judgments will now be avoided. Verse 2 When she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and writes her certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, or if the latter husband dies who took her as his wife, then her former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord And you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. See, here's a second way that this law discouraged divorce. All divorces in Israel were permanent. Divorce your spouse and you can't change your mind. Not next month, not next year, not in the next 20 years. Again, this was an attempt to discourage divorce This was to cause you to think seriously about initiating the divorce in the first place. Several months ago, Glenn Wolfe died in a Los Angeles nursing home. Glenn was 88 years old. And though he had left behind several children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, no one came to claim his body. The city of Los Angeles paid for him to be buried in an unmarked grave. But what made Glenn's case so unusual was that he was a world record holder. The Guinness Book of World Records recognized Glenn as the most married man. Glenn Wolfe had been married and divorced 29 times. 29 times, can you imagine? Can you imagine what were the women, what were the 21 and 22 and 23 gals thinking? What stuns me about this is here was a man who spent his whole life looking for love and sought to find it by changing wives, changing situations, 
And yet in the end, because he didn't stick with anyone, there was no one who loved him enough to even give him a decent burial. I hope you'll consider that divorce may not be the answer after all. That if you're looking for love, it might be best found by sticking with the one you got. Working it out. Resolving your problems. Being committed. These are the seeds of love. Let me encourage you. Love the one you got. Verse 5. When a man has taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war or be charged with any business. He shall be free at home one year and bring happiness to his wife whom he has taken. A newlywed was allowed a whole year off from military duty or from any kind of civil service to focus on his marriage, to build a good foundation. I think what he's saying is that the best way to protect against divorce is to strengthen marriages. That should be our strategy as well. He says, no man shall take the lower or the upper millstone in pledge, for he takes one's living in pledge. In other words, without two millstones, you can't produce grain, you can't grind the grain, you can't feed yourself. No bread, you don't eat. And so don't take a man's livelihood as collateral. Then he can't... Feed himself to make the money to pay you back. If a man is found kidnapping any of his brethren of the children of Israel and mistreats him or sells him, then that kidnapper shall die, and you shall put away the evil from among you. In ancient times, people were seldom abducted and then held for ransom. Usually the captives were sold into slavery. For example, Joseph. Verse 8, take heed in an outbreak of leprosy that you carefully observe and do according to all that the priests, the Levites, shall teach you, just as I commanded them, so you shall be careful to do. Remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam on the way when you came out of Egypt. You remember that story. Numbers chapter 12. Miriam was Moses' sister. And she rebelled against her brother's authority, and in response, God struck her with leprosy. We studied the laws concerning leprosy and Leviticus 13 and 14. He says, When you lend your brother anything, you shall not go into his house <clears throat> to, to get his pledge. You shall stand outside, and the man to whom you lend shall bring the pledge out to you. No illegal search and seizures. I mean, there were procedures for these things. And if the man is poor, you shall not keep his pledge overnight. You shall in any case return the pledge to him again when the sun goes down, that he may sleep in his own garment and bless you, and it shall be righteousness to you before the Lord your God. Don't hold a poor man's coat on a cold night as collateral when he needs it to stay warm. I mean, be kind. Have a heart, would you? Kindness to the poor is righteousness before God. Now you shall not oppress a hired servant, who is poor and needy, whether one of your brethren or one of the aliens who is in your land within your gates. Each day you shall give him his wages and not let the sun go down on it, for he is poor and has set his heart on it, lest he cry out against the Lord, against you to the Lord, and it be sin to you. Pay the wages promptly. Don't hold back a man's wages, especially when he's living hand to mouth, when he's living paycheck to paycheck. Pay them on time. Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall the children be put to death for their fathers. A person shall be put to death for his own sin. And before I had kids of my own, I might have had a hard time understanding how anyone would be willing to die for someone else, but not now. Because I got four of them, and if any one of them were ever sentenced to death, I would gladly take their place. Whew. Thankfully, God says you can't do that. <laughs> well, he does. 
You shall not pervert justice, do the stranger or the fatherless, nor take a widow's garment as a pledge. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this thing. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to it. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. You see, this was how welfare was administered in Israel. After the harvest, the poor would go out and comb the fields for the leftovers. So, so don't go back and accumulate all the leftovers. Don't pick the bone clean. You know, give something for the poor. Give something for the oppressed. But notice here, it wasn't a handout. The poor people had to go out and they had to pick it up themselves. It wasn't just given to them. They had to go out and do something to obtain it. I think we could learn something about that in the administration of our welfare today. He says, when you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over the boughs again. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not glean it afterward. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this thing. Chapter 25. If there is a dispute between men and they come to court that the judges may judge them and they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked, then it shall be, if the wicked man deserves to be beaten, that the judge will cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence according to his guilt with a certain number of blows. Now the judge not only set the number of blows in proportion to the crime, but then he then oversaw the punishment to make sure that the sentence wasn't exceeded. Verse 3, 40 blows he may give him and no more. 40 was the limit. Lest he should exceed this and beat him with many blows above these and your brother be humiliated in your sight and likely die, I might add. Jewish tradition says that if the executioner administered the scourging exceeded 40 lashes, then he himself received 40 lashes. That was his punishment. That was the punishment for going over the limit. And this is why to be on the safe side, the man holding the whip always stopped at 39. Just in case he had miscounted somewhere along the way, he'd stop at 39. And thus, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 24, when Paul lists the persecutions that he said suffered, he writes, from the Jews... Five times I received 40 stripes minus one, the 39. Verse 4, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Again, another be kind to your animal verse. In other words, let the ox eat from the results of his labor. As he's treading out the grain, if he wants to stick his head down in the grain and grab a mouthful, let him. It's interesting, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 9, Paul takes this very verse and interprets it as a be kind to your pastor verse. He does. He says it's proper to let your pastor stick his head down in the grain and grab a mouthful to feed himself. It's proper to let your pastor enjoy the fruits of his labor. In other words, pay your pastor. If brothers dwell together and no one of them dies and has no son, and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn which she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that this na his name may not be blotted out of Israel." This was a significant law in Israel. It was called the law of the Liverite. And the Hebrew word, levir, means brother-in-law. If a man died, his brother was to marry his bereaved sister-in-law and sire a son to bear his family name and to carry on the lineage of his dead brother. Verse 7. But if the man does not want to take his brother's wife, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to raise up a name to his brother in Israel. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. 
Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he stands firm and says, I do not want to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders. And this, is, this was a major insult. Remove his sandal from his foot and spit in his face. A public humiliation. And answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house. And his name shall be called in Israel the house of him who had his sandal removed. This law becomes the background of the wonderful story that we'll study later in the book of Ruth. Verse 11. If two men fight together and the wife of one draws near to rescue her husband from the hand of the one attacking him and puts out her hand and seizes him by the genitals, then you shall cut off her hand and your eye shall not pity her. Whoa, Nellie. Ladies, if you help your husband in a fight, whatever you do, don't hit below the belt. Now, I think the offense here is certainly not in her defending her husband, but it's where she aims her attack. Remember back in chapter 23, verse 1? You remember that verse? An emasculated man was banned from the congregation. You see, Israel's covenant with God was tied to his lineage. And thus, any attack on a Hebrew man's ability to reproduce was considered a major offense. Today, salvation has nothing to do with lineage. Today, salvation is by faith. It's by by grace through faith. Thus, if a lady today living in this age of grace is attacked by a man, then hitting below the belt with your foot or with your knee is exactly where you should aim. God would approve. It's just another advantage of being saved by grace, (laughs) not by the law. Understand? Understand that? You agree with that interpretation? Well, maybe... Verse 13, amen. We've got an amen down front here. (laughs) You shall not have in your bag differing weights, a heavy and a light. Of course, in ancient times, all the transactions were conducted by the use of scales. Gold, grain, commodities that were exchanged were all weighed. And so make sure you use an honest scale. You shall not have in your house differing measures, a large and a small. You shall have a perfect and just weight, a perfect and just measure. Stick with one standard. Be fair in your business practices. That your days may be lengthened in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. For all who do such things and all who behave unrighteously are an abomination to the Lord your God. Verse 17. Remember that Amalek, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt. How he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks all the stragglers at your rear when you were tired and weary and he did not fear God. You remember, as soon as they had crossed the Red Sea, the Amalekites attacked. They wanted to take advantage of this vulnerable band of slaves that had just gotten their freedom, that had had not had time to be organized, had not had time to mobilize. Amalek wanted to hurt God's people when they were at their weakest and most vulnerable And God didn't forget their ruthlessness. He says, therefore it shall be when the Lord your God is giving you rest from your enemies all around in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. God didn't forget and neither should Israel forget. Vengeance would come. Four centuries later, God will command King Saul to annihilate the Amalekites. And his unwillingness to do so is what will cost him his kingdom. Well, chapter 26 records the liturgy, the prayer, the praise 
that a worshiper should say over his or her tithe when it's offered to the Lord. You see, it wasn't just important that you gave to the Lord, but it was also important what you said along with the offering. And this is why I'm always making a big deal. I, ho- I hope you've heard this. I know you've heard this before, but I wish you would take heed that just going back and just dropping your tithe in the offering box is not enough. God does approve of that. He loves that. He, he, we're grateful for that. But that's not enough. When you drop your tithe in the offering box, stop and say a prayer over that tithe. Or before you take it to the offering box, offer it up to the Lord and say a prayer over that offering that is as important to God as the gift itself. He says in verses 1 through 4, he says, bring the tithe to the tabernacle. Summarizing a little bit here. Bring the tithe to the tabernacle, hand it to the priest. Then in verse 5, this is what you should say. And you shall answer and say before the Lord your God, My father was a Syrian about to perish, and he went down to Egypt and dwelt there, few in number, and there he became a great nation, mighty and populous. But the Egyptians mistreated us, afflicted us, and laid hard bondage on us. Then we cried out to the Lord God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and looked on our affliction and on our labor and on our oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, with with an outstretched arm, with great terror and with signs and wonders. He has brought us to this place and has given us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now, behold, I have brought the first fruits of the land which you, O Lord, have given me. In essence, they were praying, Lord, you've done so much for us. We're giving back to you a portion of the abundance that you have given us. And that is exactly what we need to say whenever we give our tithe to the Lord. Then you shall set it before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. So you shall rejoice in every good thing which the Lord your God has given to you in your house, you and the Levite and the stranger who is among you. When you have finished laying aside all the tithe of your increase in the third year, the year of tithing, And have given it to the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat within your gates and be filled. Tithes were actually given every year, but in the third year, they went to support the poor, the fatherless, the widow, as well as the Levite. Verse 13 is the prayer that accompanies the tithe for the poor. And then he says, I have not eaten any of it when in mourning nor have I removed any of it for any unclean use, nor given any of it for the dead. A practice that was common among the Canaanites and the Egyptians was to put food in with the deceased, into the grave with the deceased when you buried him. Sort of a little snack for the afterlife. And thus their giving of this grain or this snack was tainted with superstition. And I think this is a lesson for our giving. This applies to us because there are folks that I know who give to God in almost a superstitious fashion. They think that their offering is going to bind God to bless them in some specific way. Hey, that's not how you should give. When you give to God, give with no strings attached. Give because you love him, not because you expect something out of him. Don't let superstition taint your thanksgiving. Well, Moses closes the chapter in verses 16 through 19. This day the Lord your God commands you to observe these statutes and judgments. Therefore you shall be careful to observe them with all your heart and with all your soul. Today you have proclaimed the Lord to be your God and that you will walk in his ways and keep his statutes, his commandments, and his judgments and that you will obey his voice. Also today, the Lord has proclaimed you to be his special people just as he has promised you that you should keep all his commandments and that he will set you high above all nations which he has made in praise and name and in honor, and that you may be a holy people to the Lord your God. 
just as he has spoken. They committed themselves to the Lord. And what did the Lord do? He committed himself to them. Yes, we'll keep your statutes, your commandments. And God says, yes, and you will be my special people. I hope you've made that kind of commitment to the Lord. And if you have, I know that he, in turn, has made that kind of commitment to you. Now, next week, we get into one of the most important chapters